0: Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy, then we sit down with two recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it astro soundbites. I'm Sabrina Berger. I am a Ph.D. student at McGill
1: University in Montreal, where I study novel ways to calibrate radio telescopes. I'm Kirsten Boley, and I'm a Ph.D. candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impacts of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution.
2: And I'm Alex Galliano. For one more week, I'm a pre doctoral fellow at the Center for Computational Astrophysics, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they come from. I know, I'm not ready to leave.
0: <laughs> no, Aww. how do you feel about leaving? <laughs> chaotic.
2: There's just so much going on all Aww. the time. I'm tr- frantically transferring files off of my work laptop.
0: <laughs> well, you're listening to episode 59 Staring into the Voids in the Universe. So, we've been talking a lot about exoplanets in the last few episodes, and not that anyone could ever be tired of exoplanets, let's zoom out a bit and talk about the large-scale structure of our universe, and what exists and what doesn't exist in those structures. Specifically, we'll be focusing on the less dense regions of our universe in this episode. So, what do we mean by voids in the universe? Is there actually anything between the clumps of matter, or is it is it really empty space?
1: So... What we mean here by voids is we mean a lot less dense of stuff. So that doesn't necessarily mean that it's completely empty. But when you think about this cosmic microwave background and the large scale structure of the universe, you actually end up getting these holes where you have a lot less stuff than you would expect from these other areas. I'll
2: add that this episode is coming to you, not live, but it's coming to you from the KBC void, or the local hole as some people call it. We live in a massive void, which is a billion light years in diameter and contains the Milky Way galaxy, the local group of galaxies, and the majority of our supercluster of galaxies as well. So yeah, it's not just empty space.
0: How are voids used in a cosmological sense versus astrophysical?
2: That's a good question. I think a really powerful measurement that tells us about voids, and also about filaments too, so the absence of voids or the prominence of structure, is a correlation function, which tells you about how correlated random variables are across temporal and spatial scales. This could be an autocorrelation function if it's between the same variable measured at different positions in space or time, And if it's between two different variables, we call it a cross-correlation function. And in astrophysics, we typically talk about the two-point autocorrelation function. A lot of pieces to add. But basically, this quantifies the excess probability of finding two galaxies separated by some distance. And a lot of the cosmological physics that happened in the early universe can be imprinted in that pattern of the two-point autocorrelation function at different scales.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, so two-point autocorrelation function for astrophysics, Mm -hmm. and then correlation function, or I guess power spectrum too?
2: So definitely the power spectrum and the autocorrelation function are connected. It turns out that the power spectrum is a Fourier transform of the autocorrelation. So the two are very intimately connected to each other.
0: Oh, wow. That's awesome. And lots of correlations today I think we'll be talking about. So we'll be talking a lot about voids in year two bytes for today, but can you give me a broad overview of what methods astronomers are currently using to probe voids in our universe?
1: Yeah, there are a couple of different ways that people try to look at the voids. Some of the first ways that we've tried to look at this initially was actually looking at the cosmic microwave background that's looking at microwave. And they use either like Planck or WMAP to see these sorts of things within our universe. And then there are also a couple of different other ways that we can look at these voids. And one is Doppler lensing, which, similar to gravitational lensing, actually... What you see with Doppler lensing is the apparent change in an object's size and magnitude due to its peculiar velocities, as opposed to how light is bent with gravitational lensing. And this is kind of a new method. And then there's also gravitational lensing, which is also a new method, which I'll get into a little bit more into our bite. But the idea here is that just like how gravitational lensing can magnify things, it can also show us where things aren't magnified.
2: I'll just add on top of that, that from a computer science perspective, there are a lot of interesting tools that people have come up with to try and tease out voids within massive data sets. You have to come up with lots of galaxy catalogs to look for them, but then exactly where do you look and what's a statistically significant hole or under density in that sample, it's not easy to say. So from the, anyway, from the CS side, there are a lot of interesting things you can do as well.
0: Awesome. Wow, I'm really intrigued by voids now. I can't wait to hear more about them in the Astrobites. First, we'll hear from Alex about the primordial density waves the universe developed when it was extremely young. So Alex, do you want to take it away?
2: Definitely. My astrobite is called Stare into the Void, which I now realize is the title of our episode so apologies for that Kayla stare into the void by Kayla Cornelier based on a paper by wood Finden and others submitted to archive in May of this year those intro questions that you asked Sabrina were the perfect primer on why cosmic voids are interesting and that's half of the puzzle toward understanding this astrobite the other half is baryonic acoustic oscillations or BAOs that's a mouthful but I'll try my best to say the entire term every time to avoid jargon, okay? So YouTube will have to call me out if I slip up on it. We talked about it a little bit in the intro, but galaxy overdensities go hand in hand with galaxy under densities in the universe. And overdensities in the early universe were thought to form in the following way. So early on, you had this extremely dense hot plasma, you had tons of photons bouncing around everywhere. And those photons provided radiation pressure that prevented material from collapsing. This fight ensued between radiation pressure and gravity, and it formed ripples that traversed this hot universe and bounced around. And once the universe had expanded and cooled, material along these ripples became frozen in, and they began to gather and clump, because now you no longer had that radiation pressure preventing their clumping. As the universe kept expanding, so did the size of these frozen-in ripples. And today, these ripples represent the structures of galaxy filaments that we observe at the largest scales. These ripples are called BAO, Baryonic Acoustic Oscillations, or BAOs. And if we can measure how big they are now, then we can estimate how much the universe has expanded since it first started to cool from when those ripples first existed.
0: Wait, Alex, if this is a Void episode... How are
2: PAOs related to voids? That's a great question. Since their first detection in 2005, baryonic acoustic oscillations have been kind of the bread and butter of large-scale structure studies. And this isn't really surprising given that they tell you so much about the evolution of the universe. But this astrobyte and the corresponding paper are here to tell you that voids are actually pretty cool from a cosmological perspective as well. To prove The voids are pretty useful cosmologically. The authors took 60,000 luminous red galaxies, observed out to a redshift of one with the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, and they used a void-finding algorithm to detect all the voids in this sample between galaxies.
0: This is kind of like the void-finding algorithm you were discussing before. That's a huge CS problem?
2: Exactly. Yeah. A hundred percent, yeah. So this is a new void-finding algorithm that they've been using for a while. Then they measured the void galaxy cross-correlation function. This is between variables that characterize the void and parameters that characterize the galaxies in the sample. And they measured this cross-correlation function across different spatial scales in the galaxy sample, and they used that function to measure two very important phenomena.
1: And what did you say the redshift were of these?
2: The lowest end was 0.07, and the highest redshift end was 1.
1: Oh, okay. Why did they choose that range?
2: I think that it's difficult to go further than redshift of 1, and they tried to push out as far as they could. I would guess that as you get low enough in redshift, you would have to make some cuts just based on all of the, the interesting peculiar motions and things that happen at low redshift that make it difficult to analyze cosmologically.
1: Oh, okay. That makes sense.
2: I'm also just going to start saying cosmologically from here on out in sentences. That really that resonated <laughs> with me.
0: Cosmetologically.
2: Cosmetologically. <laughs> That's something, something else. <laughs> okay. The two phenomena are number one, redshift space distortions. Redshifts give us an estimate for how quickly galaxies are moving away from us. And we assume that this is almost solely due to the universe expanding. But galaxies can also be bound into galaxy clusters and merging and doing all these things that pull them in different directions these can all cause differences in the cosmological redshift and the redshift we actually measure and quantifying these distortions better tells us about how matter is clumped so that's the first effect the second effect is called and i'm sorry for all the names the alcock paczynski effect or the ap effect we assume that these voids because they're frozen in from the early universe, are these big, spherically symmetric bubbles. Two dimensions of those bubbles you can see directly on the sky, so you know that they're spherical, but the dimension along the line of sight in the direction that you're looking has to be inferred from your assumptions about cosmology for how far away the, the tail end of that is, for example. And if you get that distance wrong, you can end up Predicting voids to be flattened or stretched along the line of sight. So requiring your voids to be spherically symmetric actually is pretty constraining on the universe's expansion. That's the AP effect.
1: Does that have something to do with us assuming that the universe is flat and so we would assume that they have to be spherically symmetric?
2: The large-scale structure is clunked into spherical regions because of the ripples in the original dense universe right so i think the voids should be symmetric for the same reason but then there's a question of like the ripples in the early universe did they have to be like propagating radially outward symmetrically this makes the assumption that they do
0: the ap effect does
2: the ap effect says that if you measure a void that is not spherically symmetric along the line of sight then you've gotten your cosmology wrong to work that distance.
1: Now I'm just questioning the AP effect. I'm like, well, why would you assume that? There has to be a good reason, though. I know that this is, like, not necessarily the best analogy for the universe, but when I think about baking bread, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I think that, you know, sometimes you could have, like, some odd-shaped things that aren't spherical, but at the same time, baking bread isn't our universe, so I don't know.
0: I've seen that used, though, in that there's this one cosmology book that uses, like, pound cake or some sort of cake to create an analogy for the universe. So I think that's definitely distills it into a way that we could think about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, but then I'm not sure if the, you know, those weird shapes in your bread are, are because of something else. <laughs>
2: Yeah, a model's generated Hubble parameters, so the cosmological parameters that come out of a model, are considered unlikely if they yield something other than a spherical galaxy shape or void on average. Eek. So I guess that's just the, the underlying assumption on the symmetry for how they think the universe should have expanded since those, uh, that structure got frozen in. Eh? Okay, so it turns out you can get very strong constraints by using this void-galaxy cross-correlation on these two pieces, redshift space distortions and the AP effect. And by putting these together, the authors find that they can estimate redshift space distortions to higher sensitivity than ever before with this cross-correlation. When you include, so this is the caveat, when you include baryonic acoustic oscillation measurements into that cross-correlation. So you need BAOs, baryonic acoustic oscillations, to uh, improve the constraint for the redshift space distortions. But the interesting thing is that the cross correlations of voids and galaxies alone produce our tightest constraints to date on the AP effect, this non-spherical distortion along the line of sight, without ever having to tie in baryonic acoustic oscillation information at all.
1: Oh, oh, that's neat. It's very cool. Are these cross correlations the best way to, I guess, probe for this cosmic expansion?
2: It's tough to say right now. I think based on my read of the paper in the astrobyte, it seems like these are new techniques that are being developed to try and squeeze as much insight as possible out of the data sets that we already have. And structure has historically been the thing to focus on as opposed to the absence of structure. But the fact that you can get some pretty constraining results from the lack of structure as well, I think hopefully will be a complementary tool to be able to study the universe moving forward.
0: This bite focuses on galaxy surveys as probes for BAOs. There are other telescopes looking for BAOs, right? I'm just thinking about Chime was originally built as a BAO experiment that found all these FRBs and that overshadowed everything, but did they Hmm. discuss any other BAO experiments besides galaxy surveys?
2: So the authors argue that Desi and Euclid, while not providing a sample that would give us a BAO signal directly, they will probe a much larger volume of the universe over a larger redshift range, and the larger galaxy catalogs that we get from that will help us probe both BAOs and voids. And that is my AstroVide.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Alex, I really enjoyed hearing about that. I'm excited about Baryon Acoustic Oscillations. Cool. And Voids. Voids and and VAOs. (laughs) Great. Now I get to share my first space sound. And I tried to make this really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Because I feel like (laughs) Alex and Will always get it right away. Uh I want it to be like a level playing field.
1: I don't know that that's really that fair for me because I've, I've guessed like one time.
0: (laughs) It is fair, but you'll see why afterwards.
1: Okay. Oh gosh. that was ominous
2: that was very trippy <laughs> if we had just heard the first ten seconds of it alone I would have said like a sonification of the power spectrum of the universe or something because it's thematic there were deep notes there were overtones it sounded like it progressed in some way
1: I don't know because I could because it sounded so I don't like low the tones were low and ominous so I would think that it wouldn't be something with stars or anything like that.
0: Are those your guesses? I think you are actually pretty close. So this is data from the Planck Telescope's measurement of the CMB, or the Cosmic Microwave Background. Planck is a telescope built by the European Space Agency. The sound was processed and deconstructed, as they called it, by Simon Cirque. And then the spectral analysis, editing, and synthesis was done by Matrix Lab. There's this ambient sound that you hear, and it's intertwined with random sequences of the cosmological parameters that you extract from the cosmic microwave background power spectrum. They say that previous patterns that you might not have heard emerging um, from the data into this sort of musical,
1: ominous piece that they created.
2: Best case scenario for sonification, when you hear something that you didn't see in the data before you sonified it.
1: And also now I'm like kicking myself because my first thought was maybe it's the CMD. And then I was like, I'm not going to say that. That's too...
2: (laughs) Too obvious. (laughs) Too on the nose.
1: (laughs) You should have said it. It was
0: obvious. But I feel like it was mixed in with these cosmological parameters that you extract. So it wasn't just purely the data. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Sorry. That was a long kind of convoluted one.
2: Thanks for bringing it.
0: So great. Next, let's move forward a bit in the universe's history to recombination. I guess we have already moved to the cosmic microwave background, but Kirsten will tell us even more about the CMB and a cold spot in the CMB. So do you want to take it away, Kirsten?
1: Yeah, definitely. So the astrobiot that I'm going to be talking about today is called Avoiding the CMB Cold Spot by Layla Link, and it's based on the paper written by Kovacs et al. 2021. So I think that that space sound actually was the best kind of intro to this astrobite. And so when we're thinking about the CMB and before we even get to this cold spot and why we even care about this cold spot, what you really need to know here is that the CMB has basically the same temperature everywhere with fluctuations on the order of about 0.1%. So the CMB does not fluctuate that much. And that's basically with the exception of some parts of the CMB that don't fit this homogeneous picture. And one of them is called the cold spot. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this paper. This was first detected by WMAP and then later confirmed by Planck, and it's Around eight times colder than the typical fluctuations within the CMB. So super cold, super weird. And one of the explanations for this cold spot is that it could actually be a cosmic void.
2: Is there only one cold spot that's been detected? Like just this one? Or have there been others?
1: There have definitely been some others, but this is like the largest one. Okay. I think that's why it gets the the at the front of it. The reason why we think that voids could end up causing this cold spot is because they cool the CMB photons through this process called the integrated Sox-Wolf effect, or ISW. I know, a lot of terminology. But anyway, the idea of this effect is that since there's more matter around the void than inside of the void, gravity pulls the objects that are within the void out of it. And the CMB photons, if they enter this void, they have to overcome this gravitational pull. They end up actually losing some of their energy. And if nothing happened to the void, then when they came back out of the void, they would end up regaining all of that lost energy once they exit the void. So I kind of like to think of it in terms of temperature. You've got this warm area, then it goes into this cold area, and then it heats back up once it comes back out. But what we see with these photons is that this doesn't actually happen because the universe is expanding. So instead what you get is you get them going into this void. They're at this certain temperature. They go into the void. They get cold. Then when they come back out of the void, they don't actually regain all the energy that they had once they went in because now you're thinking that the CMB is actually a little just a little bit cooler than when they went in for this particular void it's quite a long time that they end up staying in there because the length of the void is actually 1.8 billion light years
2: okay you have blown my mind like 3 times in the <laughs> like the past 3 minutes in this explanation so I'm like still trying to wrap my head around this. But first of all, that is incredibly cool. Second of all, how the heck do you go from saying something about a cold spot to inferring the physical parameters of the void that the photons passed through on their way to us?
1: Here, they're actually not saying anything about the void, really. They're quite literally saying, okay, this is cool. This exists. The only thing that they're really saying is that the light has to go into this void, and that's why you would see the shift. So I think that there is some sort of assumption that you are getting light in there, but I don't actually know how they would ever know that the light actually went through the void, other than the cooling.
2: You said they have a size for the void, right? How did they get that?
1: So from my understanding, is it's from mapping that they do of the CMB
2: the cold spot in the CMB directly corresponds to the size of the void that it passed, the photons passed, is that right? Mm-hmm.
0: My question is just, if this void causes this cold spot, is it just because this void is so big that we actually can observe it in the CMB? Like there should be other voids in the universe. We said we lived in a void.
1: The cool thing about this one is it's called a super void. If we're saying that this integrated Sox-Wolf effect is what's causing this cool down, A larger void would equal a larger cooldown because the light has to spend significantly more time within the void to get through it. Whereas if you have like a baby void or a small void or whatever, then it wouldn't spend as much time. So you wouldn't expect it to be as cool. I think that that's the idea here. So, like I said, this is a supervoid, and it has a pretty cool name. It's called the Super supervoid, and like I said, it's huge. Never heard of it. Me either, until, you know, just recently. But, as I mentioned before, they used Planck and WMAP, these microwave telescopes, to initially discover this supervoid. But the authors of this paper actually end up using weak gravitational lensing with the dark energy survey to figure out whether or not this void actually exists. So they wanted to use some sort of independent measurement that it does not have anything to do with microwaves to see if they can actually see this.
2: And what did they find? Does it exist? Is it real?
1: Before I get to the punchline, let me just tell you a little bit how they use these gravitational waves to figure out whether or not there's a void. So what they do is, like I said, they use gravitational lensing. And I don't know about you guys, but when I think about gravitational lensing, I usually think about strong gravitational lensing. Like I think of this giant natural telescope that let us see these warped galaxies and see galaxies at higher redshifts. This is probably me being biased because that's what I did in undergrad. There's another way to actually use gravitational lensing, but it also tells you what is demagnified. In other words, when we're thinking of things like galaxy clusters and groups and these filaments that magnify, when we're talking about cosmic voids, they actually cause this demagnification effect. And the way that they measure this is by looking at this kappa value. And this kappa value corresponds to the matter density field of the universe of what we're looking at.
0: I was just wondering, so kappa being the matter density field, do they also talk at all about curvature? Because I don't know, I think about kappa as being the curvature of the universe.
1: Yeah, so it's not exactly the matter density field. It's technically the projection of the matter density field. I think the kappa that you're thinking of is definitely a uh, cosmological kappa, and then there's a gravitational lensing sort of kappa, and (laughs) I guess when the cosmology people and the gravitational lensing people were trying to create terms, they didn't talk to each other. They are like, surely, kappa, no one has ever thought about this term. We won't see this later. This will not be an issue.
2: (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, how many times has the variable X been used for different things? You only have so many letters.
1: Maybe we should start our own language or like lettering system. And then every single time you want to create a new term, but then I guess it would get really long. So never mind. Anyway. (laughs) But yeah, so they use this kappa value to basically tell you how much you expect the magnification. So since the dark matter energy survey has these dark matter mass maps... Try to say that a few times pretty fast. Dark matter mass maps. Dark matter mass maps. I, don't know, that. <laughs> <Maybe showing off. laughs> I know, right? I could not. <laughs> so, with these dark matter mass maps, they were able to use the matter distribution in the direction of the CMB cold spot to get basically the data that you want to figure out how much it's being lensed in that area. And when they looked at this data, and they found the kappa it did indicate that the region was less dense than you would expect however i feel like whenever there's a good discovery there's always a caveat
2: mm-hmm.
1: so when they were running these cosmological simulations and trying to figure out what they should expect they actually found that the kappa was not exactly what they found in the cosmological simulations. It was actually a bit higher than they would have expected.
0: Higher meaning less dense?
1: Yes. So they found that this kappa value was a little bit higher. So a kappa value of that is positive corresponds to a dense region. A Kappa value that's negative corresponds to a less dense region. So this Kappa value was higher than these cosmological simulations calculated that it should be. So this means that this void has more stuff in it than you would expect based on these simulations.
0: Just a quick clarification question. So the simulations predicted that the void would
1: be more dense than it was observed to be. The opposite. The cosmological simulations predicted that the void would be less dense than what they measured.
2: Why would that be the case? I mean, surely something in their simulation was simplified or didn't reflect reality. What did they get wrong?
1: So either the simulation's wrong, right? Or the simulation is correct, using what the knowledge that we have, assuming this standard cosmological, like standard flat universe. And the void could only contribute to about 20% of this CMB anomaly based on their measurements. So either something very weird is happening here, and it could be some sort of statistical fluke or something like that where maybe the measurements were wrong, Since only 20% of this CMB anomaly could be attributed to the void, that's a very large portion that you have to figure out how to explain. So the likelihood that it's some sort of weird statistics is a little bit low. The other thing that it could be is that it could indicate that maybe our current cosmological model isn't fully correct, which seems kind of like a bold statement to make. But this could indicate that maybe that horseshoe-shaped universe is the (laughs) one for us. But in particular, a smaller lensing signal could mean that this super void has grown shallower than we would expect, which would increase the CMB cooling due to the integrated Sox-Wolf effect that I explained earlier. And... Yeah, so basically either something weird is happening and we have to figure out how we can explain this, or maybe our cosmological models are missing a critical piece in explaining what's happening with this void. If you do end up using a different cosmological model, then this super void could actually explain this CMB cold spot. So either we have, you know, a different cosmological model, and a maybe a different shape of our universe than we would expect in this flat universe, and that would end up explaining this void, or something very weird is happening, and there need to be more studies to try and figure this out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kirsten.
0: I think that we could honestly almost save this episode for Halloween, because I'm creeped out <laughs> by this cold spot in the CMB.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it sounds so ominous. This is like a creepy episode. Plus the CME sound was also scary. Turn the lights on when you listen to this episode.
1: (laughs) Do not listen to this episode at night.
0: I really enjoyed hearing about both of these bites today. I think it's time for our voidy one sentence summaries. Alex, do you want to give us your one sentence summary?
2: With the help of massive spectroscopic catalogs, gaps in the universe can help fill gaps in our understanding of cosmic expansion.
1: And Kirsten? The cold spot can partially be explained by the erodinous supervoid, but we still need more studies to understand what else could be causing the CMB cold spot.
0: Awesome. I'm so interested in voids after this episode. So, thanks to both of you for that. So, I've been thinking of some questions as you both presented these astrobites. And one of them was Do you all think of voids as being just as important as denser parts of the universe?
1: It sounds like from Alex's bite, it seems like they are very useful. I think it depends on what you're interested in, because sometimes they are just as important, but sometimes they wouldn't be. In terms of thinking about cosmology, they seem like they're 100% important, and you really want to know about them. But If you don't really care about that, then, which everyone cares about cosmology, (laughs) says the planet person. (laughs) But yeah.
2: I think that we tend to look where there is stuff. And so all of our different metrics for cosmology are based up around, this is me, like, speaking off the cuff as not a cosmologist but I, it seems like a lot of the metrics that are developed are based around the large scale structure that we do see and i've seen within the past like couple of years a lot of really interesting papers come up analyzing voids but i would guess that that analysis is still relatively in its infancy and that like the real descriptive power of voids is just beginning to be explored
0: interesting It's like exomoons and exoplanets from the last episode. Exomoons are just starting to emerge.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. I would say that looking at these papers, also not as a cosmologist, but it does seem like every single paper that I was looking at, it was like this new method to detect voids. And they were all within like since 2015 or so. So I'm sure that there's a longer history than that. But seems fairly recent. Yeah, it's only the last seven
2: years. Because if you think about it, you could really only be able to study the, like, low density regions in the universe once you build up massive enough catalogs to be able to go looking for them. And that has only been possible since what, like the early 2000s with SDSS? hmm
0: Oh, you're right. So it's really our telescope power as well that's
2: mm-hmm. correlated
0: with exploring voids.
1: What would be really interesting is if there aren't any voids and there's just really, really faint stuff there. Maybe there's a whole bunch of brown dwarves that we just can't see just hanging out there.
2: Hasn't that been proposed for like a dark matter scenario? Just like a bunch of small brown dwarves.
1: Yeah, I really like it. It just seems like the gang is hanging out, you know, just trolling people. The little brown dwarfs. <laughs> That would be awesome if
0: that were what dark matter was in the end.
2: <laughs> just a lot of little brown dwarfs.
0: Yeah. We talked a lot about voids on cosmological scales. Huge parts of our universe. But what about voids that exist on smaller scales? Can we think of any of those? My first thought was, I guess, black holes, even though it's kind of counterintuitive because they're extremely massive. Um, what do you think about black holes as
1: voids? So if we're talking about things that we can see and say that there's a whole bunch of floating black holes somewhere, then I think that that would count as a void. What do you think, Alex? Because if you can't see it, how are we going to detect it? And it would just look like blank space, unless you did something like the gravitational lensing. And then, I don't know, maybe that also has just a whole bunch of black holes in it.
2: But then if you have a clump of black holes, is that structure or the absence of structure?
1: Mm. Like a
2: clustering of black holes.
1: This is true.
2: This is a really interesting question because I do think we tend to think of the universe in terms of what's there and what's not, but like large scale structure, if you were to go looking for like small scale voids within the knots and filaments along the cosmic web, like what would that tell you about how the universe has evolved? I have never seen a paper like that, but it's really interesting to think about from like a really small scale. I feel like I would say like. The inside of a star, when it's finished fusing nucleosynthetic products and it's about to collapse, would be like a void.
1: Oh, that's a cool idea, though.
2: Yeah, it's so weird to think about.
1: Yeah. And I know that we kind of talked about this earlier, but how empty does the space actually have to be? Because quite a lot of the space in between, which I know that we're in a void, but you know, thinking about this is the space in between the Milky Way and, you know, the next galaxy considered a void. There was a professor that was telling me that how Andromeda and the Milky Way are going to crash, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. the stars actually in the Milky Way and Andromeda, you wouldn't actually expect them to hit because there's so much space in between all of these stars. However, you would expect the gas to collide and begin to get some more star-forming regions. That seems wild to me. So yeah, I would think that there was voids in between, you know, each little star system.
2: Yeah, I looked this up for the introduction and it said somewhere that around 90% of the universe is thought to contain within voids.
0: Oh, it almost seems like a relative question in terms of density, you have more area that you're including in your density calculation, then it's less dense versus, you know, if you're including mm-hmm. a smaller scale astrophysical region, for example, then um,
2: it could be more dense. That's a good point.
1: Yeah. I just love voids just in general, thinking about the void.
2: Trying to find ways to fill the void.
0: <laughs> fill the void <laughs> of our loneliness.
1: I really feel like that's what habitability is trying to do, is trying to fill the void. We want some alien friends, you guys. Yeah.
2: And just like that, it's a planets episode.
1: <laughs> it always ends up like that in
0: the end. Great. So I think that just about concludes episode fifty-nine of Astro soundbites staring into the voids in the universe. I feel like we stared very deeply into the voids of the universe in this episode. If you want to read the two astrobites we talked about today or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. And if you want to hear more, check out our other episodes. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Audible, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.